A welcome break from the lull of the NFL offseason as the Jets kick off OTAs at Florham Park. I'm Glenn Norton with Jet Nation Radio and JetNation.com. Be sure to log into JetNation.com where you can register and become a part of what is the most active Jets message board on the web. So as I'm sure you saw by now, the Jets kicked things off yesterday in, at one Jets drive. We saw some tweets from reporters who were there to witness practice. We heard from the coaches. We heard from some players. We're going to cover that. We're going to cover some of the the hopes that Jets fans have for the upcoming season, what we consider progress. We're going to talk about moral victories, a term that I think some people find a little bit triggering. We're going to talk about Jets trolls because as far as I'm concerned, enough of them. Stop engaging. Stop talking to them. And uh, we're going to throw out a few names of guys who didn't do a whole lot last year, but could offer a big boost this season. Some names you'd expect, maybe one or two you're not thinking. So first off, Robert Sala meets with the media. Head coach Robert Sala tells everyone that Sauce Gardner, the number four overall pick, is going to have to earn his starting spot. Um, Spoiler alert, Sauce Gardner is starting week one. Barring injury, Sauce Gardner is... Probably in not a very long time will become the number one corner on this roster. Right now, you could say it's DJ Reed because he's the experienced guy, got the big money. But Sauce Gardner, when all is said and done, is going to be the best corner on this roster. And he will be starting. He will be starting week one if he is healthy. You don't bench top ten picks and you certainly don't bench top five picks. Uh, Sauce Gardner is your week one starter. For those of you who fell for it uh, and thought there was a chance he wouldn't, I apologize. Jeff Ulbrich spoke with the media and talked how talked about how this team would once again have a heavy D-line rotation, which would mean no more than 35 to 40 reps per game for each of his D-linemen. I hate this. Play your best players. Um, have them ready to go and to play a bunch of snaps. I took a, And this has been a trend. I mentioned this a few years ago when it was happening under Greg Williams. Like, why wasn't Quinn and Williams playing a ton of snaps. He is arguably your most talented player on defense. And we talk about how he's been a little bit of a disappointment. I get that sometimes he does disappear. But the guy's snap count is way too low. And if you look at his production versus guys who have much higher snap counts, and considering the fact he's had no secondary to work with, Quinton Williams has been a lot better than people give him credit for. I took a look. I kind of just picked out the top five, six, seven, eight D, D tackles, at least you know, I, I looked at sack production and, and guys in my mind who I've watched and I think are some of the better guys in the league. So I took a look. Last year, I'm going to read these off to you. I just tweeted it out a few minutes ago. Uh, number of games in which a defensive tackle, I said player, but defensive tackle, played 70% or more of his team snaps on defense in 2021. Jeffrey Simmons played 70% or more of his team snaps 16 times. Cam Hayward, same, 16 times. Aaron Donald, he's pretty good, 15 times. DeForest Buckner, 15 times. Fletcher Cox, even at his advanced age, 11 times. Jonathan Allen, 9 times. Jonathan Hargrave, 8 times. Larry Ogunjobi, 7 times. Quinnen Williams, 0. Not once. Quinnen Williams, threw this in as a side note, since entering the league through three full NFL seasons, has played 70% of the Jets' snaps on defense four times. I mean, Jeffrey Simmons quadrupled that last year. Quinton Williams has continually played for coaches who want guys to rest. 
almost as often as they play. So his production, putting up the numbers he has, especially the more you see this happen as the years add up, these guys are going to have hundreds of rep, of uh, hundreds more reps than Quinn and Williams. Um, and this it seems it's going to continue. And this is going to get interesting come contract time. Quinn and Williams has approached this in a mature manner. He was asked the other day about his contract and 50-year option and an extension. And he said, uh, he said, look, I'm not worried about it. Let it take care of itself. I'm just going to play football, which is great. That's exactly what you want to hear. But come contract time, if Quinn and Williams' production is sort of upper tier but not elite, but he's asking for elite money, and the Jets, the Jets won't be able to make the case that his production isn't elite, because his agent will just say, well, then I'll have him go to a team where he's going to play 85 to 95% of the snaps, and he will see a bump in production, and he will be elite. So now do you want to pay a guy in Quinn and Williams? Let's say Quinn and Williams plays again this year 60-65% of the snaps and has production that's good enough to warrant huge money. Are you then going to pay a guy huge money knowing that your return on investment, that you're going to get... 30% fewer snaps out of. And it's not Quinn and Williams' fault. It's the approach the Jets have taken. So the Jets can try to keep their linemen fresh. I get what they're doing, but you know what? Some of the most productive D linemen in the NFL, their teams aren't keeping them fresh. They're telling them, get in shape because you're playing. And I'm not saying Quinn and Williams isn't in shape. I'm just saying these teams, the expectations these teams have of their top players is you're one of our best guys. And in some cases, you're one of our highest paid guys. You're playing. You're a four-down guy. And you're, you're going to be out there 85, 90, 95% of the time. And so they have to get paid accordingly. So this is going to, or this could, create an interesting situation with the Jets. Because even if the Jets, even if the Jets are willing, even if the Jets, the Jets say, fine, we believe you are an upper echelon elite guy. We're going to pay you like that. Is that a great idea to pay a guy, say, $15 million, $14 million a year when the other guys who make $12, $13, 14000000 million a year are playing 30% more snaps? You're getting less for your money, basically, and doing it to yourself. It's not even that you have to do that. You've made the decision that you're going to take one of your best players and sit him for an awful – for a pretty significant chunk of time. And as a fan – when you're watching these games, and this team has been pretty bad for a long time, and you know those rare opportunities for a win arise, and you've you, your best player is on the bench, not a great time. So we'll see how that how the Jets handle that moving forward. Hopefully, they're playing in some meaningful games that are big enough games where they'll say, you know what, Quinn, and today you're playing eighty percent. Today you're playing ninety percent. This is a playoff game, or we're trying to get into the playoffs. Something along those lines. So that was the interesting uh, note from from Jeff Ulbricht that I saw. Mike LaFleur talked about Zach Wilson and his progress and how he's getting more comfortable with the offense. If you listened to the show last year, whether it was through the pod uh, with myself, Alex, and Dylan, or whether it was through this, you heard me say a few times that the biggest difference I noticed in Zach Wilson's game was the the conviction, the the, the way he went from being a little bit hesitant to all of a sudden one day we saw the ball coming out a lot quicker, a lot more fluid. He seemed a lot more comfortable in the offense. 
And that's pretty much what Michael Floor was saying yesterday is that that has continued. And Wilson is now at the point where he's able to call out the play before it's even be, before LaFleur even finishes giving it to him. Wilson can start feeding it to his guys because he's got the offense down even that much more. He hears the start of a play call and he's able to anticipate the rest of it. So this, this is good news. Um, the fact that we saw him progress mentally last year. And that was one of the comments LaFleur made yesterday is that that continued. Um, we saw some notes on the 7-on-7s, seven the 11-on-11s. The 11-on-11s, Wilson struggled a little bit, went 1-for-5. The 7-on-7s, seven he made some big throws. Uh, and what we can take from this is absolutely nothing. Nothing. These guys, he's playing with guys who have never played in this offense before. He's playing with guys he's never played with before. He's playing with offensive tackles. He's playing with backup offensive tackles. Voluntary workouts. George Fant, not there. Makai Becton, not there. Fant had a knee scope. Becton had a kid a couple weeks ago. Neither one of those guys are there. So he's playing with backup offensive tackles with new players in a system they're not familiar with. The receivers and the quarterback, not all of them are familiar with each other. And there's going to be some rust. So anyone getting happy or anyone feeling any type of way other than mm, about about production in a, you know, a, 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 a OTA this time of year, it's not something I would, I would, I, I can't, I don't know what to tell you. It doesn't mean a lot. Uh, it means slightly more than nothing um, at this point. Remember a few years ago uh, during OTAs when Chad Hansen looked like a different player and he was lighting it up and, ooh, he might be ready to take the next step? This is what, these are, these are ways for, for players, coaches to get familiar with one another and to, you know, to try to, as I think it was Dan Leberfeld of, uh, Jets Confidential, who said that this was, you know, this is the time for, for players to get familiar with the system, familiar with one another. Don't t don't take a lot from this. Um, as you know, Chuma Doga and Connor McDermott are the starting tackles right now in practice. It's there's nothing to be taken from this. Nice to hear that you know it, when things are going well, but don't get too high or too low based on any of that because we don't know how this is going to translate into the season. You know, what What do we want to see this season? What do Jets fans want to see this season? We've been saying this for years. The team's been so bad that we go into every year saying, I just want to see progress. I want to, I want to see this team get better, uh, which is funny because I feel like an awful lot of people, when the team does get better, or when the team has, you know, has a good Sunday or they do something well and any particular week, win or lose, especially in a loss, if you say like, well, they did this well today. One of the first things you hear is, oh, no moral victories. I don't want to hear about moral victories. So nobody wants to hear about moral victories, but everyone will be happy with improvement. Well, Im improvement, this team could improve. This team, here's the crazy thing, and fans don't want to hear it, and that's fine, but it just goes to show how bad they've been in recent years. This team was so bad last year that they could get a lot better and still not win many more games. Because, listen, there are different tiers in the NFL, as we know. You've got your Super Bowl champ, your playoff teams, your your borderline playoff teams, your doormats, which the Jets have been. But the Jets were so bad last year. You know, we, we talk about how the NFL loves the fact that they have parity, that so many teams are competitive. Every team has a chance every week. Even the bad teams, you know, are often losing games in the final quarter, in the final minutes, on the last drive. How many games did the Detroit Lions lose last year on missed field goals in the closing seconds? Three or four. 
So this Jets team in a league full of parity, in a league where, again, week to week, the margin of victory is razor thin more often than not. Here here, Here are some of the point differentials in their losses last year. The Jets lost two games by 15, one by 17, one by 19, one by 21. They lost by 26, 28, and 41. The Jets' point differential last year was minus 194. That's atrocious. That's the second worst mark in team history. This is not a brand. They may play like an expansion team, but the Jets have been around for a while. And in all their years, that minus 194 was the second worst mark in team history by a head coach who coached the full season. The only one who was worse? Adam Gase. Who else? 2020, the Jets minus 214. They tied that mark in 76, but that was a coaching change midseason. So for a head coach to take a team wire to wire and finish with a deficit of 194 is the second worst mark in team history behind only Adam Gase. But when you finish with a 194 point differential, you can improve a lot. You can get a lot better from one year to the next. And if next year your point differential is 80, and you you know may, maybe next year you're like the Lions. Maybe instead of losing by 41, you're losing by you're you're losing on that last second field goal. You know, instead of having eight, you know, seven, eight, nine games where you're not even competitive, maybe those games are going down to the wire and you're coming up on the short end of the stick. And maybe you only win a couple more games than you did last year. But you still got better. You still made progress. So in those moments, in those games, people are going to say, I don't want to hear about moral victories. I don't care if we almost won. I want to be better than competitive. Yeah, everybody does. But you just said before the season started that you wanted progress. And when you're losing games by 40, losing games by 6 is progress. It's not enough progress. And I'm not even saying that's what's going to happen. I've said already, if Makai Becton is healthy and he manages to start and you know play 14, 15, 16, 17 games, and if Zach Wilson makes that next leap, if, these are all ifs, if Carl Lawson didn't lose a step after surgery and guys like you know rookie Michael Clemens, Jermaine Johnson, if they come on, listen, there is a lot of talent on this team now. That's why we know they're better. That, you know, this is on Robert Sala now to a, a large degree. And that's not something that's getting talked about enough. Th- this team has added so much talent that they can't come away and just come, have a bunch of blowout losses. Is that If this team goes 6-11, and 11, fans are going to be, you know, some fans are going to be pretty upset. And I get that. But if they go 6-11 and 11, and they're taking every game down to the wire or most games down to the wire, then you'll be able to say this team is a lot better than last year's team. And that's the goal. Get better every year. Now, you go out there and you have another 150-plus point deficit, and you only win four or five games. Now, Robert Sala's on the hot seat. But that's a long way away, a very long way away. But I just think it's funny because I hear I, I hear a lot of, all I want is progress. But while the progress is happening, people complain that they don't want to hear about moral victories. I don't care if we were competitive. It's all about wins. Okay, it's all about wins. Then the offseason comes. Just want to be better. I just want to see progress. So which one is it? You know, what you call moral victories, I may call progress. Because that's what that's what it is. 
when you are a doormat, a perennial doormat, 10 years, no playoffs, atrocious football team. If this team goes out and goes 5-12 and 12 next year, but we see five or six games decided in the final quarter or the, on the final drive, the losses will be frustrating, but you'll be able to say this team is playing much better than they did last year. And it's part of the process. Listen, I want 17-0 and 0 in a Super Bowl. Of course. That's what we all want. But let's live in reality and realize that this team was so bad that they could improve dramatically and still not see a huge bump in their win total. Doesn't mean they won't. Just something that could happen. Interesting thing, though, that I, you know, in, in talking about whether or not this team will be better, whether they won't, which, you know, which brings me to the trolls, the Twitter trolls. Stop feeding them. These are the, these are the flat earthers of the NFL. Um, these people that come up with these theories, these, these ideas, these hot takes that are just nonsensical. Um, and I don't know if Jets fans react more aggressively or if they're just more active in replying to people's dumb takes. So there, you have people who are trying to build a platform or just get the retweets and the likes and the interactions. Because even bad interaction is good for these people. It's just about getting people to respond to what they're saying. Um, I don't do hot takes. It's never been my thing. But a lot of people do. Um, so, so some of the moron takes we've seen in recent weeks. Um, a former NFL QB, uh, first round bust said the Jets won't be any better. Um, which is, I just, I even just said that may be the case, but I'm acknowledging the fact that this team has added a lot more talent and the wins may not go up much, but they will be better. Um, there was a former player who was just basically trashing the Jets, writing them off as if, you know, there should be no conversation as to whether or not they will be a competitive football team. Um, that Jets fans got got mad. They got pissed. They responded. They retweeted. They they interacted. Um, there was another guy, um, a writer for PFF. And I'm not saying – I don't know most of these names. I don't know who these people are. I'm not going to – I'm not going to say who they are because, A, I don't know, and, B, I wouldn't anyway because this is kind of – this is why you do the hot takes. You know, I'm hearing this. I know that. Here's this thing that, you know, the completely illogical, irrational thing that – you know, there's no basis in reality, but I'm going to tweet it because people might engage with me. Again, these are football flat earthers. Um, somebody said giving up a fifth-round pick to get Brees Hall was a bad move. I, there aren't a lot of a lot of takes that are worse than that. You're talking about fifth-round picks rarely ever make a roster. You gave up a chance to get a guy who probably doesn't make your roster to get the best running back in the draft. This is a no-brainer. It's not a bad move. It's an, It's one of the easiest moves a GM will ever make. Um, there's a guy on Twitter, um, and I'm, I'm only saying it because these stories, these headlines, these hot takes, uh, came, they come across my feed so often that I know it's, it's Jets fans who are engaging and retweeting. Um, guy claims he used to be a scout with the team. I don't know what he did. Again, I forget his name. I actually engaged with him a couple years ago when I first heard his story because I thought it might be legitimate. I don't know if it is. I have no idea if he was really a scout or not. Um, but he's using he's saying Zach Wilson's a terrible pick, and I know this because I looked at his box scores versus the box scores of earlier BYU quarterbacks. Atrocious. Did they play the same number of games? Did they have the same number of pass attempts? Did, do some players not develop at different rates? Like maybe a guy doesn't get it his first couple years. I mean, Zach Wilson didn't start his first couple seasons. Like sometimes it takes a little bit longer for the light to go on for some guys. Um, so to say that this college quarterback wasn't better than this other college quarterback 17 years ago, and this is why he's no good, you can't get a worse take than that. You really can't. 
but I saw it retweeted. I saw it, you know, the arguments. I think it may have been posted on the message boards at JetNation.com. Again, I don't get it. Um, but it seems like every couple weeks now, like every two, three, maybe once a month, like someone comes out with a flat earther theory about the Jets. Uh, the, the latest and dumbest Jamal Adams trade, the Jets lost that trade. Again, no basis in reality. The Seahawks got themselves a safety who can't cover and had to pay him $18 million a year to save face for giving up as much as they gave up for him. Uh, what the Jets have used to acquire with those picks since giving up Jamal, I'd be willing to bet will be better players and will offer more, uh, you know, more bang for their buck. Um, you know, the, the, the crown jewel of that trade, of course, at this point is uh, the Elijah Vera Tucker move. I believe one of those picks was used to move up and get um, Garrett Wilson. So, I mean, the Jets are, the Jets will have used those Jamal picks to get themselves multiple starters. None of them, I mean, time will tell. But it would be hard to believe, like, paying a player $18 million a year who can't do the main thing he's paid to do, which is play defensive back in the Jamal Adams case, this would be like Elijah Vera Tucker not being able to pass block, but the Jets giving him $18 million a year because he's a really good run blocker. Uh, would make no sense. Um, at, at the very worst, you could say undecided who won that trade. The Jets won the trade. Um, but you could say, well, let's wait a couple years and see what happens. Maybe Jamal Adams learns how to cover. Maybe Elijah Vera Tucker gains 300 pounds a couple years from now. And he's fine, whatever. But to say right now today that the Seahawks won that trade by overpaying a safety who can't play safety is absolutely ludicrous. Um, stop following the football flat earthers. Stop retweeting them. Stop engaging. Um, the dumb takes, just, just you know, give them the boot. Let them go by the wayside. Um just want to touch real quick on a few guys who whose names we saw a little bit yesterday um you know they're they're kind of we're hearing whispers here and there about you know how how well some guys are doing um obviously Zach and Beckton are the two biggest factors on this team this year moving forward but the name Denzel Mims keeps coming up um in terms of what type of shape he's in and I get it I every time I hear a guy say I'm in the best shape of my life I just roll my eyes it's sort of code for I haven't been a very good player lately, but I promise I've been lifting weights, so I'll be ready to, you know, to, and it rarely ever pans out. You rarely see a difference. Every player is always in the best shape of their life, if you ask them. Um, Denzel Mims, however, I mean, for those, and we've mentioned this before, if you see the, I believe it was Instagram, someone posted some 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 shots. He looks like a different player, and he, he's at a point in his career where he's young enough, like he's still going to get stronger as he gets you know, over the next few seasons. Not to hit those late 20s, 30s where you see that drop-off in strength and, you know, all those physical traits. Um, so he is still a developing young man. So it's feasible to say he's in the best shape of his life. And if you look at the the Instagram photos versus previous photos, he is in the best shape of his life. So he is putting in the work. He is still here. And you have to wonder, Denzel Mims, is he one of those guys, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but is he one of those guys who's being saved by his draft status? Like if Denzel Mims were a sixth-round pick or an undrafted free agent, would he have been let go by now after because after last year, what a disaster it was? I don't think that's completely out of the out of the, the beyond the realm of possibility. But as it stands, he's a second-round pick. Pre, you used a premium pick on him. If you're Joe Douglas, if you're any GM, no GM wants to cut a premium pick within a year or two. Um. You know, that quickly before giving him a chance to, to really succeed. 
So I think the Mims thing, I think his draft slot helps him. But, <coughs> pardon me, I think the the work he's put in helps him more than anything because he's undoubtedly put in the work and he apparently looked all right yesterday. Uh, another guy I want to talk about, uh, just mentioned briefly, LaMarcus Joyner. Like, this guy signed a one-year deal last year. He, he's, a, he's a huge question mark because of the fact that the year before the Jets signed him, he didn't have a, a really good year, but he apparently was moved around a little bit. Prior to that, when he was playing exclusively safety, was a much better player. The Jets gave him a one-year prove-it deal last year. He gets hurt. They liked him enough that they said, you know what, we're bringing you back again. So he's back again. Now you got LaMarcus Joyner back there. you got a, you got a safety room with a lot of names, but not a lot of proven guys. You know, Elijah Riley had some moments last year, but is he really going to be a starter? Very unlikely, especially as we see Jason Pinnock, who's another guy I wanted to mention along with Joyner. Like, these are two guys. Pinnock got some reps late in the season, looked a little uncomfortable his first game or two back there in the second or back in the at the safety spot after moving from corner. But those last couple games, he looked all right. He looked like he took to the position and was reportedly running with the ones yesterday, which, again, as I said, you don't take this stuff too too seriously, but... I think in years past, we've seen guys who get those reps with the ones that maybe you don't expect. A lot of times they hang on to those, uh, hang on to those reps. So Pinnock was reportedly getting some run with the ones. And then, of course, you've got Joyner back there. Whitehead will obviously be a starter. It's that other spot that's up in the air. And I think LaMarcus Joyner, the Jets, again, they clearly like him, even though he didn't play a single snap last year. They bring him back. And so I think he'll be back there competing with Pinnock. And, uh, you know, there are some other guys on the roster. We'll get a look back there. You know, Ashton Davis, what happens with him? I think he's probably a guy who gets relegated to backup duty. But, again, another Joe Douglas draft pick. And, you know, I think he's produced enough that he would still be around with most teams, um, especially as we saw him improve as the year went on last year. Made a couple of big plays, and, you know, it, it's tough to be too critical of guys when entire defensive units are in shambles, which is what the Jets were last year. No pass rush, secondary had no help. And they were just getting toasted up and down the field. So it didn't go, you know, it didn't go as planned. The injuries were a huge factor. Joiner's back from his injury. And that, of course, brings us to Carl Lawson, who will be back from his injury. And, you know, how will this affect him? How is this going to affect his explosiveness coming back? You know, he's not he's not out there running with his team right now, as he is still recovering. But I think that he's a guy who has an opportunity to have a huge impact on this defense. And if he doesn't. You know, going into next year, I mentioned this the other day, how, you know, do you keep him around if you're the Jets? If you get anything less than elite production from Carl Lawson this year, do you keep him around? Because I don't think you, I don't think Joe Douglas is going to be in the business of paying good players elite money. Um, right now, Carl Lawson is due elite money, and if he loses a step after this injury, um, he's never been a guy who's gotten to the quarterback a ton anyway. He's always been sort of an anomaly because you look at the you look at the traits, you look at you look at the film, and he looks like a guy who should be able to get 10, 12 sacks a year, but he's never been that guy. Now in this system, new coaching, new approach, does that happen? Does he become that 10, 12, 13 sacks a year guy? If he does, then you pay him accordingly. But if he comes out and if 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 he loses a half a step, or even less than that, if he loses anything, and he's a five sack guy, and you don't see the the quarterback the hurries, the hits, the pressures that you're expecting, if none of that stuff is there, do you keep him around? At his price, what, $16, 17000000 whatever he's due? I doubt it. I doubt you keep him around. 
Um, but he's going to have a year to prove himself. He's going to have a year to prove he's worth it. And they're really, you know, just as we've said, there are no excuses for Zach this year because of the weapons they put around him on offense. Same goes for the defensive guys. Quinnen Williams, Carl Lawson, all these guys, no excuses. You've got, you've got a good second that you should have, in theory, on paper, right? I say this all the time throughout the offseason. This is all on paper because that's all we've got. There's nothing else to go on. We're just going based on the expectations we have of the guys on the roster. We expect the secondary to be markedly better. And if they are, the D-line's production better be markedly better or they're going to have a hard time getting those big paychecks, at least from this team. So, fair bit to go over. The Quinn and Williams thing I think is going to be interesting. Again, given the, the expected, not even decrease, but if they're going to maintain, if they're going to continue limiting his reps, that will hurt his production. Will the Jets then use that at the bargaining table where his representatives can then say, well, his production is low because his snaps are low. If he's playing 60% of the snaps of the guys who are getting 10 sacks and he's getting seven, that tells us he's one of these 10, 11, 12 sack guys in a different defense with a different team who's willing to give him the reps to get to the quarterback. So time will tell. Who knows? It's just nice to have something to talk about. I know I haven't done one of these in a few weeks. I don't feel compelled to hop on and give an offer a take or an opinion on every single minor nugget that comes across the that comes across the wire. This is just the 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 worst part of the offseason for fans. There's really nothing going on. That's why it was refreshing. It was nice to have some OTAs come along this week and a couple of nuggets pop up that were worth addressing. But we will be back again next week. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at JetNationRadio at JetNation.com. Be sure to follow Dylan Terriman and Alex Varallo. They do the night show. I do this one um, at D Terriman and at NY Jets Life 24. I'm at AceFan23, ACE Fan23. And as I said, log in, join the forums at Jet Nation, and uh, let your voice be heard. There's some good threads on there, good conversations. Um, one at the moment is uh, that I like is, is looking at the draft next year. It's On the one hand, it's way too early to do this. But at the same time, other than OTAs, and they will be over soon, there's nothing new to talk about. Uh, barring a new acquisition or some type of news, um, you, we're just regurgitating and repeating the same talking points that we've been talking about for weeks and possibly months. Um, so there's a thread on there on Jet Nation, people asking what the approach will be in the draft next year. I think it's a, a, a nice uh, conversation time killer. But uh, once, once real football starts, draft talk goes away for a few months. And then it's uh, back to real football. But nice to have OTAs and uh, hopefully some uh, some good positive stories coming out of uh, out of those OTAs in the coming days. That'll wrap it up for now. I'm Glenn Naughton, Jet Nation Radio. Log in, register, subscribe, chat, talk Jets. Have a good one.